Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome, my friends. I hope you all enjoyed your winter solstice celebrations. I know you're enjoying all those new socks and ties and scarves as you battle the elements this week. Today we talk with our old friend Dave McGilvery, race director for the Boston Marathon, about what the 2014 race holds in store for us, both tactically and emotionally. There are some good insights in there for those of you who may be coming to our fair city this spring, and it seems that many of you are. In section one, may the gods have pity on me, I'm going to talk about diet, which is like a cat discussing dog toys. And in section two, we will talk about running slower to get faster. I have reached the pinnacle of my comeback from that long injury. No, I didn't run a qualifying marathon, but I did injure myself again. I know. You're rolling your eyes and sighing. I can hear you. So what happened? Well, I put in a number of great big base weeks coming out of Fort Myers. And I have aches and pains, but nothing that I couldn't run through. Then I went up last week to Salisbury, Massachusetts to run the Hangover Classic, which they have renamed the Winter Classic for political correctness purposes on New Year's Day. This year I decided to run the 10K, and I had no real feel for what my pace would be, not having done any speed work since, well, August, and I decided I'd run 7.30s and treat it as sort of a mild tempo run. It was around 18 degrees Fahrenheit out, so comfortable racing temperatures, and I had a really good run. I knocked out 7.17s with a little more effort than I had intended. I definitely felt the lack of speed work and the focus on base building, but it was fine. Then my kids and I, we did the ocean plunge, which is our tradition. The Atlantic Ocean wasn't so bad. It was about 36 degrees or so, but it's still a shocker when you go under. There's this moment when you realize your body has ceased to function from the shock and you still need to get out of the water. And it's this infinitesimal moment of panic and a closeness to death. It's really quite refreshing as a way to kick off your new year. The next day, I had a long run scheduled, and I had to stop 45 minutes into it because apparently I tweaked the ligament on the top of my foot racing. So bottom line, I've been limping around for a week, and I had to renew my pool membership to get back to my pool running. I have to tell you, it's great timing. I was due for a rest week anyhow, and I feel really good about my base. I think if I manage this injury correctly, I can limp into these next two marathons quite refreshed and confident, assuming I can walk again. And that being said, my coach is brilliant. I tasked him with the impossible goal of getting me stronger while training for Boston and running a marathon a month, and he delivered by giving me this big load of long, slow base building. And remember, it's okay to overreach. My friends, you have to go for it. You have to set goals that stretch you. In fact, if you want to try a disquieting exercise, 
you might want to review your accomplishments for the last year or the last two years or the last three years or five years, not just athletics, but in your career, in your aspirations, in your relationships. I did this recently as I was refreshing my online business profile, and I realized I haven't really accomplished anything of note in my job, really anything big, in a couple of years since we sold the last company. And I think it's because I haven't been taking enough big risks. So I've basically been retired, and I can do better. And you can too. Let's make 2014 the year we reach for the stars and live in expectation of the abundance of the universe. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. New Year's Diet. A few thoughts on what I've learned. Did you see last week in the newspaper that Dave McGilvery, yes, that Dave McGilvery, has heart disease. He's got blockages in his arteries. How can that be? This man who has run across the United States, who has been running long distance consistently since he was in his teens, has blockages in his arteries. He started feeling a shortness of breath, and they, they had to do a CAT scan to find it because people like Dave passed that stress test with no problems until they dropped from a heart attack. So why does Dave have heart disease? He says it's from years of poor diet. And that's true. Our generation of runners believed that if the furnace was hot enough, anything would burn. We thought we could train away bad diets. And of course, we now know that's not true. Exercise is good for you, and we'll add years to your life. Running is the best exercise there is, but heart disease has a large hereditary and dietary component as well. I'm not super comfortable talking about diet and nutrition. Sure, I'm an amateur endurance athlete with a busy life who manages to get most of it done at a decent level of efficiency and effectiveness, but I'm really a bad example. Over the years, I've adjusted my diet as I've learned, but I'm still far from perfect. I have yet to find that holy grail of diet or lifestyle design that makes everything rosy. But I have learned a few things over the last 50 years that may be useful to you. Take it for what it is. I have lived through all the major diet crazes of the last 50 years. I survived the brand and roughage diets of the 70s. I survived the low-fat diets of the 80s. I survived the high-protein diets of the 90s. And I'm currently surviving the paleo and veganism and diet shake crazes as we speak. Here are two fundamental underlying thoughts that I want you to consider before I get into some of the specifics that I do. First, you can't separate one element of diet from everything else and expect it to make you healthier. We're always looking for shortcuts. Just tell me the one thing or the top three things I have to eat to be healthy. The world prays on this desire for simplicity and direction and gives us simple answers. Unfortunately, those simple answers are typically nonsensical. Every day I open some web page and get smacked upside the head with a banner that declares there is one secret trick to lose belly fat, and there isn't. There isn't one multivitamin or element or herb or macronutrient or protein or one carbohydrate that is going to unlock the magic key to you being skinny and healthy. 
in many ways, the off-quoted medical studies add to this nonsense. They find a correlation between one element of diet and some outcome, like the study found that subjects who ate more fiber had 10% less chance of heart events, and somehow that gets translated to fiber prevents heart disease, and then everything has fiber in it. The truth is that life is not that simple. Sorry, life is chaos. Your health is the result of an infinite number of environmental factors and inputs over time. The inputs and outputs are nuanced. There are no silver bullets. Avoid people who want to sell you silver bullets. And the second big thought I'd like you to think about is that you are an experiment of one. What works for me may not work for you. In fact, recent science is saying that your specific genetic makeup has a large influence over what your diet should be, or more appropriately, how your makeup reacts to certain diets. And again, we want simple answers. Industry is happy to provide simple answers if you're willing to pay for them. But just like your training plan, your dietary plan needs to work for you, not for an average person. Now let me share with you some specific things that I do as I have adjusted my diet over the years to try to get healthier. The first one is very simple. It's avoid processed foods. Processed food is anything that comes in a can or a box, and it's a challenge. Processing was invented because it makes everything easier. It supports mass production and efficient distribution. It makes food convenient. How much easier is it to open a bag of chips than to make and eat a salad? The problem with processed food is that it's high in calories and low in nutrient. Again, this is the process of singling out one element of food and op optimizing it. In this case, they are optimizing calories and production costs. We produce lots and lots of cheap calories, which is great, but we process out all the other stuff in the food that we need to survive and make us healthy. The other problem with processed foods is that our super smart food scientists have figured out how to use the most readily available and cheapest ingredients in everything. The processed food of 30 years ago had different and more diverse ingredients. The same basic ingredients are in everything. For example, if you order a salad, it'll come smothered in a dressing made from corn syrup and croutons that are made from corn syrup and triple or quadruple calories in that, in that salad dressing and those croutons than are in the salad. They sneak them into everything. And yeah, sorry, but that shake from your favorite nutrition company or the protein mix, yeah, that's all processed food too. I don't trust them. Those low-calorie prepared foods designed for you dieters? Yeah, those are super processed foods. Anything that's made to do something it wasn't supposed to do, like tofurkey, that's a super processed food. And I don't drink any soda. Soda is processed food. I drink sparkling water. Sparkling water is a good compromise, and it doesn't stain your pants when you spill it. And secondly, I eat a lot of fruit. This is my packaged food, fruit. I eat at least four or five pieces of fruit a day. Apples, pears, bananas, oranges, grapefruit. I try to be sensible about the high sugar fruits and keep it balanced. Fruit has carbohydrates, 
nutrients, water, and that fiber that everyone was so concerned about in the 70s, and fruit is portable, which fits my lifestyle. The biggest apple you can find is only 200 calories. Third, I eat a big salad once a day. When I go to the market, I'll come back with a big pile of vegetables. I'll chop them up into little pieces and put them in a big bowl. It's not just a wedge of iceberg lettuce. You need to have variety. This big salad is what I have after my workouts during the day. It's my midday meal, and I love it. I really look forward to it now. And my favorite salad fixings include, not limited to, but include, <laughs> a variety of lettuces, different kinds of kale, red bell peppers, cucumbers, onions, carrots, chard, cranberries, mushrooms, raw almonds, celery, cabbage, radishes, avocado, basically whatever is available. And I chop it up small so I can get more into the container, and I splash a little homemade vinaigrette on it. Now, so notice what I don't put on it. I don't put bread or meat or cheese or any cream-based processed dressings on my salad. That would be processed food. This variety of vegetables, especially the, the colored ones, have all those micronutrients in them that the vegans are always prattling on about. The big salad is full of nutrients, full of fiber, full of water, full of slow-burn carbs, and you, you'll you be hard-pressed to cram more than five or 600 calories into a bowl, no matter what you do to it. Now, you may say that that makes you hungry, that doesn't fill you up, but if you add some avocado and some nuts to it, it will. Fourth, I try to limit the amount of sugar and bread and pasta and dairy that I eat, and especially if I'm trying to lose weight. And I'm not talking about paleo or Atkins here. I am never in ketosis for lack of carbohydrates. I get plenty of carbohydrates from my fruits and vegetables. But if I want to lose weight, all I have to do is cut out the bread and pasta. Whatever works for you is fine, but these foods make me fat and puffy. And instead of cow milk, I drink almond milk, especially when I get home from work. This is a behavior modification trick that I've learned. When I walk through the door, I'm always starving. I'm programmed to be starving when I walk through the door. So instead of making a poor nutrition decision, like a peanut butter and fluff and Nutella triple-decker, I have a big drink of almond milk, and it fills me up so I can make a better decision about dinner, and it's only 400 calories or so. So fifth, as an endurance athlete, I've mostly weaned myself off high-sugar energy drinks and gels over the last five years. And I found that I really don't need them, and most are hyper-processed sugar and chemicals. There are less processed alternatives. If you look at the ingredients, you can find them. Once you realize that the gels are mostly psychological, you can find a better balance. I see people with 12 gels for a half marathon. Folks, your body can't absorb that much food. Where do you think it's going? I don't know if that helped you, but maybe it gave you some ideas to pursue or to look at for your experiment of one. Exercise alone won't keep you healthy. There's no silver bullet or simple answer to the diet question, so stop looking for one. Humans are complex machines of infinite chaos. Your machine is different than everyone else's. You should still take care of it as best you can. Now, I was a fat kid, not really fat, just pudgy and non-athletic. 
and I still rock the belly roll even as I'm running a marathon a month. And I remember more than once being introduced as a marathoner and having someone say, you don't look like a marathoner. <laughs> and it doesn't bother me. I'm an ongoing experiment of one. I strive to make progress, not perfection. So don't get frustrated by diet. Just try to do the simple things. Try to eat healthy and make good decisions over the long haul, and eventually you'll figure out what is right for you. Cheers. And now for today's featured interview. Dave McGilvery. It's been a long year for you, huh? Uh, they're all the same, 365 days, but it's certainly been... Uh, eventful. A, a little stressful and eventful is, is a good way to put it. Yeah, it was a tough spring uh, for all of us. I directed uh, Groton just a, a scant week or two after uh, after Boston, and so it, was, uh, it just adds sort of a layer of stress to everything you're doing, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, obviously everyone has responded to the events of April 15th, um, especially in our industry. You know, I've probably directed or consulted on 15 events since then, and everyone sort of has to decide for themselves as to how they want to respond, how they want to treat their event in terms of uh, security and making sure everyone is safe. So, and we leave that to the local public safety officials to make that determination. But that being said, it's tough uh, not to continually look back at, to what happened and and you want to be vigilant and and hope that it never happens again but you have to prepare and be ready for anything now um, it used to be all about mainly the weather mother nature right. sort of her wrath whether it's cold or heat or rain or snow or wind or whatever it might be and and now we have to think about these other things, which just adds another whole layer to uh, to put producing these events. Yeah, it adds another layer of contingency planning. Uh, some of it good, though. Some of the stuff, you know, like thinking about bag check and thinking about, you know, on-site security and that sort of thing was, was actually stuff that we hadn't thought about before. So it was probably, you know, in that sense, it was a, a maturity thing for us, for our event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suppose it gives everyone, you know, pause for revisiting, you know, their their protocols, if you will, and just always, you know, see something, say something, kind of an attitude, and and just being aware, being vigilant of your surroundings, and you know, what I try to tell everyone also is, in as much as we work real hard at being prepared and we're looking out for the safety of everyone. There are so many more participants than there are organizers. So at some level, the participants all, each and every one individually need to take personal responsibility for themselves and just prepare accordingly. And when that happens, then um, generally everything goes well. But if the participant is just relying on the event to sort of do it all, uh, at some point in time, there's a breaking point. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah, I was I was talking with uh, Bill Rogers a couple of weeks ago, and you know we were having a conversation about what the Boston Marathon used to look like, you know, 30 years ago. 
and how, you know, there weren't even water tables or anything unless you made them yourself, you know, and it was, uh, yeah. it was interesting. It's interesting how much the sports changed in that short period of time. Well, I mean, the same could be said for life in general. What did America look like 30 years ago or anything? So it's uh, evolution. You know, things change. Um, I think the one dynamic of our industry more than any is just the growth. Yeah. You know, whereas way back when there were hundreds and then and then there were thousands and now there are tens of thousands and that just that just changes all the dynamics of what we do and gives a heightened level of management to these events. Uh, it used to be, you know, not method club Fred Brown, God bless his soul, special uh, on a Tuesday night running through some town in, you know, wherever up in the northern part of the state and a couple hundred people and two burgers and a bear and we go home, you know, and now it's 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 plus, plus, plus. the stakes are really off the charts now and the amount of resources, the amount of money, the attention, it really has become a significant business, if you will. But I think it's a good thing. I mean, the fact that these races have so many people in them just is evidence that there are that many more people who are now starting to pay attention to their own well-being and doing these for health and fitness reasons, lifestyle reasons, uh, doing them to raise their level of self-confidence and self-esteem. It's not, it's not necessarily what it was back in the 70s and 80s, and that is a very competitive environment. It's more of a participatory environment with, yeah. with a lot of competitive up front, but still, you know, the masses are there because they want to participate, not necessarily compete. So you're going to try and squeeze uh, 35,000 people at the course this year, huh? How how we how how are we going to do that? <laughs> well, there's two aspects of making something fit, especially in this industry. One is sheer space or real estate, and two is time. So if you don't have a real lot of real estate, you better have a real lot of time. Uh, if you don't have a real lot of time, you better have a real lot of real estate. And if you can get a lot of both, you've got a, a, a less challenging situation. So for us, we don't have a lot of real estate, either on the front end, the back end, or even in the middle. You know, Hopkinton's a small town. The roads are narrow. And we don't have a lot of room in the back bay once they arrive. So we really need to spread it out over time, and that's what we'll do. So we'll add a fourth wave. So there'll be 9,000 in each wave. So that's 36,000. And we'll open up the gaps between the waves just to make sure it really does spread out and there's time to reload and there's time to accept them at the finish. And then they leave and the next group comes in and then they leave and the next group comes in and they leave. And it's going to be a long day, but by doing it that way, you minimize the congestion and, and you're able to take the pressure off all the volunteers along the course and at the start and finish because they're not just getting nailed by 36,000 people all at once. So, so that's right. what we plan on doing. So what's the 
usual spread between waves? Because I think I remember there being, what, 10, 12 corrals? How many corrals do you have in each wave? Um, yeah, well, there's basically nine corrals in each wave, you know, a 1,000 right, so people 10, in a people. corral. Yep. So, in essence, um, that's how we do it. The last few years, we've had three waves, wave one at 10, wave two at 10, 20, wave three at 10, 40. This coming year, we'll have four waves, first one at 10, then the next one's at 10.25, so we're giving ourselves five more minutes to reload. And then we're not going to start the third one, most likely, until 11, and the last one at 11.25. So whereas the last person crossed the starting line, say, this past year at, say, approximately um, 10 55, the last person won't cross the starting line this coming year till closer to like 1140. So, you know, it's it's basically a 45-minute delta. Not a lot, but we're adding another 9,000 people, so that's why we need to do it. So you're, those guys are almost back to the original uh, noon start time. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, it's pretty... Pretty interesting that, you know, they're going to be crossing the starting line close to when we used to hold the race and start the race back before 2007. Right, which was always a tester because then you get the hot weather up front and it sort of cools down after you come over the slump on the backside. So yeah, it's, I mean, there's so many moving parts and so many different dynamics and constituencies you have to try to balance and satisfy and. I mean, it's not a perfect science, so we're doing the best we can with what we got. You know, I mean, most other races that are this size, whether it's New York City, Chicago, London, Berlin, whoever, I mean, they were born only 30-plus years ago, so they they knew that their race was going to be fairly large, so they could design a course to accommodate that, whereas when this race was given birth, there was only, what, you know, a handful of people doing it, and the amount of space that they had back in the late 1800s isn't any less or more than what it is today. So nope. that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, I mean, and I've run other big city races, uh, like I was out in Denver this year, and they have tons of room, right? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we helped, um, actually, DMSC Sports helped to bring that race back and you know, right by City Park and the wide Broadway Street and all that. And coincidentally, you bring up that race because I always use that as an example of how a race can be designed and make it really convenient and really simple because you're staying at a hotel right across the street. You, you leave your hotel room 10 minutes before the start of the race, go to the bathroom the whole bit and come downstairs, line up, run the race, cross the finish line, same place where you started, go back to your hotel room, take a shower, come back down, go to the award ceremony. How simple is that, right? Whereas, yeah, and the real estate they take up is real small, too. It has a real small footprint, so the city doesn't yeah. have to spend a lot of resources on it either. Right, right. Yeah. So we're getting 35,000 people out there to run through the race. Did you see, you know, everybody was talking about how everybody was going to try and get into Boston this this year. Did you see uh, anomalous, any of the curves on the on the qualification and the sign-up look different well, this year? Um, I mean, interesting question. Obviously, none of us had a crystal ball and knew what to expect. Yeah, you know, I guess 
somewhat surprised we didn't get more people applying than actually did. I mean, we turned away some people, as everyone knows, but not tens of thousands, as some people speculated. So I think when it's all said and done, everything worked out fairly well. You know, and, and of course, the people who didn't get in, everyone has an opportunity if they want to run for a charity or whatnot, or in this case, the one fund or something like that. So it all ended up going fairly well, fairly smooth. And, you know, our, our field is, is full. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, I saw that some, the, I think the the my age group, the the spread was like a minute or something up the qualifying time. Uh, yeah. 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 So, so the times are good, you know, as far as qualifying times. I mean, everyone's always saying, "Hey, you're going to tighten them, or open them up. You're going to do this. You're going to do that." And a lot of it is just in response to the marketplace. I mean, the bottom line is, we want everyone out to the the perfect scenario would be if everybody who qualifies gets in and no one gets turned away. So we're <laughs> we're looking for those times you know, that would be ideal and be equitable across the board, male, female, and age groups and all of that. So, it, you know, you can do all the analysis you want with that data, but it's a changing environment out there too. And sure. people are running differently today than they ran even two, three years ago. So, um, but when it's all said and done, I think, I think, I think things went pretty well. So, you know, this year, Dave, you know, I think it's going to be a big deal, right? And the eyes of the world are going to be on us here in Boston. You know, what? What have, do you have any preview for any kind of, you know, what kind of ceremonies are going to go on, or is there anything special going on this year? Well, there, there are two things. There's what we as the race organizers are planning, and then there's whatever else the rest of the world is planning. Um, and we can't control all of that. And, you know, people are going to come and do things on their own that we don't even know about right now, whatever that might be. I mean, within limits and within permitting uh, approvals and whatnot. So that remains to be seen. I'm sure I'll be standing there on the street with my jar open, you know, or just saying, oh, my goodness, look what's going on over there. Look what's going on over there. Um as far as the race organizers, um, yeah, there are some things being being worked on. Nothing has been announced yet, uh, but will be, you know, whether it be anniversary things or re- tributes or remembrances in addition to, you know, the race itself. So those are all sort of kind of quietly being worked on right now until we can crystallize them and, and then get final approval and then appropriately an- announce them. So, so looking forward to sort of, you know, putting that, those final pieces together shortly. You got any, uh, any celebrities signed up yet? I'm not aware of any myself. Doesn't mean that there aren't any that, you know, there could be that I'm not aware of, or maybe there are and, they really haven't made themselves known either. Um, yeah, that's I've, typically how I've it heard, happens, right? Yeah. I've heard some some just talk about some celebrities, you know, wanting to participate, you know, but I haven't personally seen anything that jumps out as of yet. 
Yeah, a lot of times those guys keep a low profile until you you see them in the race, you know, or, or right. hear about them in the race. Yeah. Well, I don't blame them, you know, because, you know, they they tend to uh, attract a crowd, and if they're going to – it isn't like they're just there to have a meal. They they had a lot of marathon. They want their time alone to be able to, you know, get in the moment and run their race, so they don't need a lot of people clocking all over them either. Yeah. So one of the things, when, when we had all this weirdness in the spring, one of the things that I was really pleased with was how our community, how our, you know, our local running community uh, dealt with it. You know, how people, when they were asked the question, you know, came back with very empowering answers. You know, here's what we're going to do. Here's here's our support. Especially because I was directing a race, like I said, right after the marathon. And I got the questions from the press like, you know, do people want you to shut it down? And I would answer honestly just the opposite people are coming in droves to support so it, it i was did you find that kind of response oh yeah you know races were actually increasing in sales size in the immediate aftermath of april 15th it wasn't like runners were saying oh i'm not going to go to a road race again because you know they associate danger with running in races and it was as you said just the opposite there was more of a solidarity here going on and people who you know i never come in contact with were writing and calling and sending banners signed by runners you know running in their race and i mean the memorabilia type items were flooding our offices from all over the country and all over the world so it was very symbolic of an industry that came together, but I al- always knew that the industry sort of was was united, was a united front to begin with. But this one really solidified that. Yeah, and there's there's something special about Boston in its ability to to transform people's lives, different from other marathons. You know, people will run other marathons and be one and done. But they run Boston, and they come out the back end change for some reason. I mean, do you hear those kind of stories? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting on my end, um, we never get cavalier about the race, nor take it for granted. But it's not like you can't slip into that kind of attitude because we're so close to it and eat, sleep, sleep and drink it every single day. I mean, I, as you know, I've run it a whole bunch of times, and... You know, I've been there for a lot of years, and the streets I run on, not every day, but almost. Um, So it's very commonplace for me, as it is for a lot of people who work on the race or whatnot. But at the same time, we do recognize the fact that people from all over the world look at this as the holy grail, you know, that's that this is this is what they've been dedicating their entire running career towards, you know, qualifying and participating in the Boston Marathon. So we don't want to take it lightly in terms of, um, you know, we want to make sure that their experience is second to none, you know, when they come here and that they're treated all like elite runners, if you will. Um, so... You know that's and 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 next year I can only imagine what's going to be going on in the minds of all these runners. You know, not only are they at Boston in terms of 
what the event has been for 117 years, but the fact that it's coming off of what happened in April and being there just to remember and pay tribute to and honor those uh, who were victims is uh, it's going to be just quite an emotional uh, scene, you know, uh, especially uh, at the finish line. Yeah, and at the start as well. I mean, like I, I told you, I've been running a marathon a month this year since Boston, and I find myself choking up at the, uh, you know, at the flyover that that first part where they're where they're singing the national anthem. It's just very emotional, right? Yeah, I mean, what was so surreal this year for me, anyways, is that we had decided to have a 26-second moment of silence at the start of the race this year in remembrance of the 26 victims, you know, in Newtown, Connecticut. And so right before the wave one start, we made that announcement, and my goodness, you could hear a pin drop. And the entire running community, the entire town just bowed their head and um, was quiet, and it was so surreal. But then when you retrospectively look back at that moment, I mean, none of us knew that, what, five hours later, we were going to be experiencing our own tragedy. So now maybe next year we'll be standing on the starting line doing the exact same thing, but for ourselves this time. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it's almost, uh, it's, it's a spiritual experience for me when I'm standing on the starting line of a marathon. So, yeah. so anything of note that you guys are going to do new or different this year out at the start or at the finish or in between? Um, those things that are, are going to be more in tribute and remembrance to April 15th, like I said, will be announced shortly in terms of the race itself. One thing that we we didn't we conscientiously didn't want to do is change the the fabric of the race itself. We want the Boston Marathon to be the Boston Marathon, not necessarily a 26 mile tribute run. That will happen leading up to race day, but we want to maintain the integrity of the race. You know that's why people have come here for 117 years and. And I think people want a really good running experience, too. And they can, as they take a right on Hereford and a left on Boylston, you know, people can can sort of remember and, and, um, and think about what happened last year individually, um, I'm sure. And that's going to be very emotional for them. But, um, you know, our focus is, Again, as you started out by saying, 36,000 people on this small, tiny course is, is no easy uh, chore to to uh, conduct. And then, obviously, when you look at what the level of security may end up being, it's almost being squeezed at both ends. On the one hand, you have to be even safer and more vigilant about your security systems this time around. But we have so many more people to accommodate too. So a bunch of us are just focused on the operational logistical side of things to make sure everything goes off well and, and no one gets hurt in the normal course of, of running the race. So there's a lot going on here. Yeah, um, it's a good idea to add some more time to the reload between the waves because I know the last few years I've run, 
I've had trouble getting to my corral. Not that it matters. You just go in a different yeah. corral. You, you're wearing a That's check, right. you know. So, but uh, right. the time to get from the high school to get to yeah. you know corral two or corral three in the second wave, no way I could get there. Not yeah. because of the distance, just because of the people in front of you. It's like people, it's right. like right. Yeah, it's like when they call you know boarding on an airplane. Everybody stands up. Yeah. Same I thing. Know. Yeah. Well, we knew that, and again, no one's pointing fingers here, but we need to be sensitive to the cities and towns and how long they'll allow us to keep the roads closed. So we're we're trying to tight, make it as tight as possible and still get the job done out of respect for the cities and towns, but at the same time, now that everyone has signed off on the extra bodies, we've said to them, don't give us permission to add more people unless you're going to give us permission to add more time. So right. I'm, we've been, so we're, we're going to do that. Yeah. All right. So sounds right. like we're going to have a very successful year, Dave. Thanks for the chat. All right. I lo- I'm Thanks looking forward much. to it. So am I, frankly. <laughs> All right, pal. Take care. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights, because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Running slower to get faster. So how's that work? As we roll up under the covers in these winter months, on my side of the planet anyhow, I want you to think about going slower to get faster. This is a counterintuitive thought especially for new runners. Let me try to explain it. Perhaps you've heard ultra runners or Ironmen talk about building a big bottom, and you thought to yourself, that's why I go to the gym four days a week, to get rid of that big bottom. Or maybe you hear them talking about banking miles, like it's some sort of running equivalent woodpile they're building in expectation of the long winter. What are they talking about, and what are you missing? So today, I'm going to sing the praises of running slower to get faster. What we're actually talking about is running slower to get more efficient. Running slower to get faster means taking the time to build a big base. What do I mean by a big base? A big base is a relatively large volume of training at a lower intensity level. Think of it as the foundation of a house. You want to build a solid foundation for your house. In fact, the quality and the size of your foundation will constrain the quality of the house you can build. The theory is to build that underlying strength and then build the racing speed on top of it. But Chris, won't running slower make me slower? Well, actually, yes, it will. The theory here is that you build the base and then you lay the quality speed work on top of it. For example, I have been doing only long, slow base building runs over the last couple of months, and I raced a 10K last week and found that my legs had very little speed. But I'm not training for a 10K. I'm training for marathons. I don't need to go fast. I need to go far. And all the speed in the world won't help me if I'm walking at mile 20. So, Chris, you're telling me just to run more miles? That's really not helpful. No, 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 no. There is more to it than just running more. 
And that's the important nuance. Running slower, building a big base, means running purposely at a lower effort level than you would normally run. This is where it gets sticky. If any of us walk out the front door right now and start running at our normal easy run pace, that pace is going to be too fast, or more accurately, too much effort to build base. You need to run at a lower effort level. Base building isn't just about running more miles. It's about running in such a way as to promote physiological changes in your body that are useful for endurance. This is what smarter people than I have figured out. They discovered that if you do large amounts of zone 2 training, it promotes changes in your muscles that give them the ability to go longer and more efficiently at all speeds. Okay, Chris, there you go again with that zone training. What does that mean? This is really the secret sauce of base building. Technically, I'm referring to heart rate zone 2, which is a way to measure your effort level by tracking your heart rate. I'm not going into heart rate training here. You can search my blog for posts that I've done on heart rate training. Think of it this way. If you take your spectrum of effort levels and divide them into five categories, where one, zone one, is the effort level of a brisk walk, and zone five is an all-out 5K pace effort level. Chris, as usual, I still don't know what you're talking about. Okay, boil it down. There's two key things you need to know for base building. First, running in a zone two effort is drastically more efficient at promoting those physiological changes needed for endurance than any other zone. The second thing is that this is a different effort level than your normal easy run. Bang, that's it. That's the punchline. If you're trying to build base by just running more miles, you're wasting your time. You may not even need more miles if you take the time to train in a lower effort level in a zone two. Great, Chris. I get it. Run slower to get faster. That's it. Well, no, not really. That's the knowledge that should make running slower to get faster make sense. The actual training involves some investment. You need to block a good chunk of time and dedicate it to base building. If you're just starting out, you may need months or even years before you start to see the big benefits. When you see the benefits, you will be amazed. You'll find this work enables you to run more efficiently at all paces. Let me say that again. This Zone 2 work will enable you to run more efficiently at all paces. It's the transition that takes patience. Most of us don't know how to run in Zone 2. When you first start, it's a terrible experience. In order to get your heart rate down into Zone 2, you may have to walk occasionally, and you'll find your pace painfully slow. And it stinks to have to log your miles where all your running friends can see them with those slow, slow paces. It's ironic in a way. The running slower is almost as difficult as speed work or hill work, but in a different way. You need the discipline to stick with it and stay slow and stop thinking about your pace. It'll take two or three weeks of consistent zone two training before you start to wrap your head around running slow. And what I end up doing is running by time, not distance, but just time, and taking the pace display completely off my Garmin. You make sustained zone 2 effort level the point of the workout. 
and you get it done. And after a while, depending on where you're starting and how disciplined you are at sticking to the training, you will notice that you are running faster at the same zone 2 effort level. Within a few months, you may even find that you are running at the same pace you used to run at or faster, but now you're doing it at a zone 2 effort level. This is the big payoff. By running slower, you have promoted changes in your physiology that allow you to run faster, or more specifically, with less effort, for much longer. The same thing works for biking or any endurance sport. Now the winter months are a good time to do some base building. Typically the races are in the spring or in the summer and fall. And you've got time to train slower without having to worry about an impending race. The conditions up here where I live in the northern hemisphere aren't great for any kind of speed work or tempo work with the cold and the snow and the lack of sunshine. Anyways, maybe the next couple of months would be a good opportunity for you to strap on your heart rate monitor and do some slow running. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Okay, my eminent, risk-taking friends, you and I, have successfully skated on the pond ice produced by the polar vortex to the end of episode 280, 3-280 of the Run Run Live podcast. The air is so dry and cold that you feel like the world could shatter into little pieces with the utterance of a single word. But there is only the silence of the winter wind. The snow falls, floating, silently, and filling the scene with soft drapery. Your breath clouds and you are filled with the pureness of simplicity and the cleanliness of isolation. Poor Buddy is going totally bonkers with cabin fever. I can't run the trails with him on my dodgy ankle, and I can't take him out with me on these two, three-hour road runs on the leash, so he's just not getting outside enough, and it makes him a sad dog. I'm still noodling what we should do for the next iteration of the podcast. I'm thinking I may want to bring on a partner in crime for one of the segments. Reach out to me if you think that would be fun. Maybe a Q&A segment with a co-host each week where we answer the mailbag questions. Remember, if you talk at people, they lose interest. They fall asleep. If you involve them in a conversation, they stay awake. And that's what we need to do. I've got a ton maybe even two tons and a hogshead of travel and a couple of back-to-back marathons coming up in January, and things will get weird. But I like that. Weird is my lingua franca, my Esperanto, and my stock in trade. If I can pull my world with me into the vortex of chaos, that is my home field advantage. I'd really like to race well at Waco and pull off a qualifier, And with the base I've built, I think this is within the realm of possibility, assuming I taper well and race smart. Ryan's starting to panic that it's a very hilly course. But hey, you know, what goes up must come down. He said, based on last year's results, I would probably win my age group. (laughs) Must be a small race. 
if the course turns turns out to be over the top madness hilly like that Bay of Fundy marathon, I could always jog it and then race New Orleans the following weekend with Eric, or I could race both. I've got the base set now, so that sort of warp thinking is okay in the nether world of chaos that I inhabit. The challenge is if I can't BQ by the end of January, I miss the reseeding deadline for the 2014 race. And in reality, I can probably work around that. You know, I know people. It's hardly in anyone's best interest to seed me in the wrong place, right? And if I blow it in these two races, then I'll just focus on racing Boston to the best of my ability. In my world, that's how you show respect to the old race. If I blow them all, then I'll worry about that when the time comes. If I run my legs off, I'll find a competitive crawling adventure somewhere and get back to training. If we go back to our New Year's goals and introspection, I have a challenge for you. I want you to commit to doing something epic right now or when you get back to the house. Sign up for something. Send an email. Fill out a form. Call someone and kick off an epic adventure. Do it today. Don't think about it. Sign up for something epic. It will change your life. And I'll see you out there. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. I'm not aware. Oh,